Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Average life expectancy was about 35 or so. If you stand on it today, you are standing on about, in places, about three metres of built-up ground, which is just absolutely crammed full of burials, and that's something that we found in, in... Infectious disease would have killed, you know, the vast majority of people throughout the thing. Her life seemed to be etched in her bone in a way that really causes, brings emotion and makes you think how hard her life must have been. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is Three Lives, Three Deaths and One Life Unlived. This show is a bonus episode where I prepare the final podcasts in the Great Famine series and it looks at something entirely different. The words that opened the podcast are from archaeologists Colleen O'Driscoll and Dr Linda Lynch, as well as the interpretive designer Sheila Dooley. And they are just a flavour of what you can expect in this fascinating episode, one I really enjoyed making. This podcast focuses on the intriguing details of life and death in the past, things that make history enjoyable for everyone. Like you, I'm gripped by the nitty-gritty details of how our ancestors lived. What were their daily lives like? What was life expectancy and how did they die? So, a few months ago when I heard the details of a new exhibition of three human remains from a medieval graveyard was opening up in my hometown, I immediately knew it would make for a fascinating podcast. This exhibition, entitled Three Lives, Three Deaths and One Life Unlived, focuses on the lives of the medieval poor, detailing their daily struggles. The exhibition is based on archaeological excavations in a graveyard where I recorded most of the show and where the museum itself is located, so it's a very different approach to normal episodes. Now while Three Lives, Three Deaths and One Life Unlived doesn't open until late July, I was able to interview the team behind the exhibition from the archaeologists who excavated the graves through to the people who designed the exhibition itself. The show even includes an exclusive walk through the exhibition. It's an amazing insight into the lives of the poor. I'm going to get right into the episode, but as always, I do want to thank the show patrons who fund the research, the time and the resources needed to make episodes like this. 
I'll keep this intro brief, but if you want to help out yourself, I really appreciate your support and you can find out more at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Without further ado, I'm going to start this episode beginning with a recording I made in the very cemetery where the excavations at the centre of the new exhibition took place. I'm recording today's show from an unusual location. You might be able to hear the hum of traffic behind me, maybe some birds, or even the noise of the pub kitchen that's not too far away. But I'm actually sitting in the grounds of St Mary's Medieval Church in my hometown of Kilkenny. The tomb of a certain Henry Reynolds, who died in 1803 at the age of 63, is half buried in the soil before me. His grave is just one of the countless stories on the slabs across the cemetery, each one offering a fascinating glimpse into the past of this town. Now, few places in Kilkenny, or I would even argue maybe Ireland, have a history like this church and graveyard. I haven't come here, though, to tell the stories of the people recorded on these grave slabs. Instead, I'm here to tell, or more accurately, to get others to tell the story of a people forgotten by history in every sense of the word because there's actually tens of thousands of people buried in this graveyard. This church and graveyard was where the people of Kilkenny came to pray and more importantly buried their dead continuously for nearly 800 years and the numbers of people interred here is mind-boggling. Although people pass this site every day going about their business in Kilkenny Few are aware that according to archaeological estimates, there are around 50,000 people buried here in a space not much bigger than a soccer pitch. Think about that, 50,000 people, that's 50,000 funerals, 50,000 lives and 50,000 stories. Indeed so many people are interred in the ground beneath me that has actually changed the very landscape. The graveyard now lies raised above the surrounding streets. There are literally human remains everywhere. The lines I heard so much as a kid in church, Remember, thou art but dust, and into dust thou shalt return, takes on a striking meaning here. The soil I'm sitting on presumably is made from that very dust of human remains. Looking around me though, it's hard to figure where those 50,000 people could fit. This is not one of those sprawling graveyards with neat rows of headstones. It's tiny smaller as I said than the size of a soccer pitch and has a haphazard appearance. Some of the graves tilt under their own weight and run in what seems like random directions. Henry Reynolds beside me here looks like it's actually being swallowed up by the earth. Most of the tombs are now covered with ivy and they come in every shape and size. Inside and close to the church is a warren of crypts where Kilkenny's elite were laid to rest. Their names are often carved in stone above them and preserved for posterity. Then in the graveyard there are a few hundred more traditional headstones, chest tombs and simple markers. Before I began I actually took a look around to see who some of these people were and it gives us a tantalising glimpse into the past. There was William and Margaret Gower who endured the Black Death and were buried here sometime around 1350. Then Bishop David Roth who witnessed the chaos that followed Oliver Cromwell's attack on Kilkenny in 1650. Then there's the grave of the seven-year-old Anne Kingston, who died in 1851 as the Great Famine drew to a close. Although she was from a very wealthy family, you can't but wonder what Anne had seen in her short life. Perhaps the most unfortunate story recorded here is that of an A.M. Duke, a member of the Royal Field Artillery, 
who died in October 1918, just 13 days before the end of the First World War. He isn't actually one of the 50,000 buried here, but his family erected a plaque to him in his hometown. Close to his marker is the grave of a Harry Tallis, whose tombstone records how he succumbed to the influenza pandemic that followed in the wake of the First World War. It's easy to get sidetracked in this graveyard with all these stories, but as I said at the start, they aren't the reason I came here. Because while there are a few hundred headstones remembering individual people, the vast, vast majority of those buried here have no marker or no known grave, and it's their story that fascinates me. There are tens of thousands of them lying beneath my feet, and while they have physically changed the very landscape of their native city as their burials mounted up generation after generation, they themselves have been forgotten. Their lives, deaths and the stories they lived have been lost to history. Finally though, after what was a series of remarkable excavations a few years ago, these stories have now been recovered and that's what we're going to hear today. To explain the resurrection of these people, I suppose you could call it, I need to first briefly explain a bit of the tumultuous history of this church and graveyard. So the church that actually stands before me right now in this graveyard was built around the year 1205. To put that in some sort of historical context, the building in front of me was built not long after Strongbow had died or in terms of international events, the Crusades were still a thing and Genghis Khan had yet to emerge on the world stage. Now after it was built, the church became the centre of life in Kilkenny over the following centuries. It weathered the storms of the Reformation as it was converted to Protestantism, but also allowed Catholic ceremonies to continue around burials for centuries. It also survived Cromwell's siege of Kilkenny, rebellions, recessions and then, not to mention, the Great Famine, until history finally caught up with the building in the 20th century, as the Protestant community of Kilkenny dwindled in the decades after Irish independence. Somewhat inevitably, the last religious service took place here on the site in 1957, after 750-odd years. The burials finally came to an end, and St Mary's fell silent. In the 1960s, the church was converted into a community centre, and oddly a Badminton court, but this couldn't hide the fact that the building was in need of major works. My first memory of St Mary's in the 1980s, or maybe it was the early 90s, was a pretty decrepit building. Nature was also reclaiming the graveyard. Indeed, it was so overgrown at that stage, you could scarcely access the spot where I'm sitting right now. And it seemed that rich and poor alike, the named and the nameless, buried here, were going to all be forgotten. It may have survived wars, plagues and sieges, but the early 21st century seemed certain to be the final act in the long history of St Mary's. Then, about 10 years ago, it was rescued when it was announced that the church would house Kilkenny's new medieval museum. However, making that a reality was a really daunting task. While the graveyard itself needed huge work, the church was in need of a complete overhaul. And before any construction could take place, large-scale excavations got underway both inside the church and in the surrounding area. And it was that that revealed this graveyard's secrets, bringing the lives of some of those who had been lost to history back into focus. Although archaeologists as much as possible tried to leave the dead undisturbed, it was inevitable that during these excavations a small number of human remains had to be excavated. 
These came from two distinct groups. Some fragments came from the tombs of the wealthy, but around half, including several complete bodies, were retrieved from the graves of the anonymous poor buried here at St Mary's. While the excavations were completed in 2016 and the museum opened in early 2017, years of research has been completed on those human remains excavated here and remarkably now three of those skeletons are about to go on display in the medieval mile museum here beside me. While we will never know their names, extensive analysis by a team of experts has revealed much about the lives of these people which to you are going to seem nasty, brutish and short, but are really fascinating. While this exhibition, entitled Three Lives, Three Deaths and One Life Unlived, doesn't open until July the 25th, I got a chance to interview the team of experts who were able to provide extraordinarily vivid detail about four very ordinary people. The first person I spoke to was Colleen O'Driscoll from Kilkenny Archaeology, Back in 2016, Colleen led the excavations which investigated both the wealthy tombs of the elite of Kilkenny and he also excavated the remains of the town's less fortunate people. The archaeological excavation at St Mary's took place between 2015 and late 2016 and we were there because a new museum was, was being built. And there had been a little bit of work done prior to when we got on site and that had suggested that there was significant archaeology there and historical records told us the same thing. But we had absolutely no idea, to be honest with you, what we were getting into because the level of preservation of the archaeology on the site was quite extraordinary. And the extent of the, of the excavation, we ended up excavating about three quarters of the area of the original medieval church down to about a depth of about a metre or so. It, it subsequently transpired that that was all fill that had been basically thrown into the church interior after the demolition of the side aisles and, and the chancel of the church in, in the mid-18th century. And that had brought the, a new floor level up about by about a metre or so. And the amazing thing was that that preserved everything underneath. So we, our main job was really to excavate out all, all of that fill and then record essentially the, the medieval floors and tombs and vaults and uh, the various funerary monuments that we encountered along the way as well. Once we took off the, the modern floor levels, uh, we were straight down onto human remains, basically. The church was, was the main burial site for about 800 years from the, the very first church that Strongbow had built on, on the, the site through the William Marshall major urban parish church that, that, that he constructed, which is essentially what, what's there today. It was the main burial site for the town. So we estimate, and it's a very crude kind of back of the envelope estimate, probably in the region of maybe 40, 50,000 burials on the site uh, and if you look if you stand on it today you are standing on about in places about three meters of built up ground which is just absolutely crammed full of burials and that's something that we found in in the, the excavations that the, it, they are just packed in like sardines basically and one on top of the other 
grave diggers had pretty little regard for pre-existing burials, so they would have no problem just chopping through an old burial uh, and and then placing a, a new burial in the ground uh, in, in in its grave. And in fact, in in some cases where a pre-existing burial was cut through by a new grave, the the grave digger would he take the skull of the disturbed burial and he put it on the knees of the the new burial who who went into the ground and when we opened up the interior of the church one of the most interesting things we found was were these uh, purpose-built stone burial vaults as they're called so these are like little rooms under the floor of, of the church and they're entered by a set of steps would have gone down from the centre of, of the nave or the transepts and, and from the late 16th century onwards that was the preferred place of, of burial in, in the church and uh, you would be, your coffin would be placed in a stack basically inside in, in the burial vault and then a grand tomb would, would have been erected then over the on the wall above the burial vault. So we've got, had a good few examples of that. The most interesting burial vaults that, that we found, I suppose, was the vault of the Roth family. When you go into the museum today, you can actually still see the the steps that lead down into their vault. Um, but when when we entered that for the first time, we it was just amazing. I mean, we saw there was a, a stack of these very, very fine timber coffins, uh, much narrower than the, the coffins that people are buried in today. Um, they're almost kind of trapezoidal in, in shape and they're, they're decorated with these lovely copper alloy studs and those studs then hold a wrap of black, um, probably velvet cloth, which wraps up the, the, the entire coffin. And the the studs then, in some cases, then they, they spell out the initials of the the person who is uh, buried in in the coffin. In the graveyard, then it was a completely different story because you had to be wealthy and well connected to be afforded burial rights inside in the church. Out in the graveyard, generally, it was completely different. That that was where. The poor and the middling classes of, of Kilkenny, they, that's where they were buried. And we ended up having to excavate an area in the, the southwest corner of the graveyard. It's just at the entrance, where the current entrance uh, in, into the churchyard is off St. Mary's Lane there. And in that area, the, we identified about 20 burials in a, in a very, very small area with the the size of um, six or seven meters across, and uh, of those, then we we excavated eleven burials, and they were all crammed in together. There was examples of intercutting of, of burials. There was the, in some cases, the the skulls of the earlier burials had been placed on the knees of the the most recent ones, and um, they were treated very very differently to those that were inside in, in the church itself. We uh, no indication that any of them were buried in coffins. Instead, they were buried in very, very simple earth-cut graves. They were wrapped up in shrouds, which are 
basically um, linen cloths that are kind of tightly wrapped around around the burial, and and there was no none of that cloth survived um, because of the ground conditions. But what we did find were the little pins, the little small copper alloy pins that would have held the the shrouds together, um, and you can also take a, a pretty good guess that somebody was buried in a shroud by the posture in the grave as well because the, the, the ankles tend to be very, very close together because they're wrapped up and if they're in a coffin, the bones tend to spread out a little bit more. So we're pretty certain that most of the burials, the, the 11 burials that we excavated in that area would have been interred in uh, in shrouds and, and they were certainly in, in pretty simple earth-cut graves. So you're dealing here with a section of the community who were probably quite poor. People who were buried in, in that area died young. Uh, they had all had pretty difficult lives as well to judge by the traumas that were evident on their bones. And there was one of the the burials that's that's going to be on display in St Mary's in particular really resonated with people at the time as I remember when we were excavating it. The it was a, a young female, she was only about seventeen or eighteen when she died. And uh, she radiocarbon dating of her, her bones tells us that she, she died in the late fifteenth or sixteenth century. And uh, and she had a whole series of traumas on her back and that suggests that she died. Uh, we don't know exactly what she died of, but when she died, she had severe back pain. It's the kind of thing you'd see on, you know, a 70 year old builder these days of some fellow who's been lifting heavy weights all his life. But here you have a, a 17 or 18 year old girl who uh, has the same thing on her, on her back and um, yeah I mean, that's somebody who certainly had a hard life maybe at the time we would have been you know we speculated that maybe she worked as a servant in in one of the big houses in in the town at the time and she was carrying heavy loads like maybe buckets of water or that mm. that, that sort of thing but we don't know I mean there's plenty of evidence that young females were involved in building the great cathedrals and castles at the, at the time as well. So maybe she was uh, a labourer, she was breaking rocks, we, we just don't know. Uh, in Inside in her grave as well, we, we found some of the, the shroud pins, the little copper alloy pins that held the shroud together and also uh, these things called lace tags, which are the copper alloy, little cylinders of copper alloy, and they're placed on at the end of laces to stop them fraying. So the laces, again, that lace probably was wrapped around her, her burial, her shroud, uh, to keep keep the whole thing together. And um, so she was a particularly interesting burial. Back in the medieval period, and especially in a town about average life expectancy was about 35 or so 
So it's completely different to now when, if, if you're a teenage girl, basically, by the time you're 14 or 15, you had your first child. Um, you might expect to live for another 20 years or so. And that was the, the norm, particularly if you're at the lower end of the, the social scale, like, like these people certainly were. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, much of the work involved in any archaeological excavation takes place after the dig, in the analysis phase or the post-excavation phase. I had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Linda Lynch, who's an osteoarchaeologist who focuses her work on the study of bones. Linda was able to find out a huge amount about those buried here from their remains. She talks here about her work and what she was able to find out able to tease out, I suppose, from looking at the human remains is certain aspects of how um, life may have been different for for people throughout time and as well as based on their status in society and as well as based on their sex or gender. Um, you know, your your life was dictated, to be honest, to a certain degree from, from the moment you were born, if you were born into a certain level of society or you were born, uh, you know, a certain sex. Just taking, for example, those buried at the entrance, the burials were quite simple and I suppose more elite buried in the, the Ross Chapel that, you know, both of them had evidence of what we would find very commonly in human skeletons, which is degenerative joint disease. Um, but there was different patterns and uh, to a certain degree, those buried by the gate, and particularly women, had evidence of quite heavy physical labor from probably a young age whereas the three uh the i suppose more elite males in particular buried in that rot chapel had joint disease and some quite severe but they were they were what we'd call elderly which is over 45 um in osteological terms but uh they had different patterns in the joint disease that it tended to be more like in the hands and the arms you know that perhaps the the work that they were involved with would have been maybe a little bit more sedentary, but involving um, some type of use of the hands. Some, you know, we're not absolutely we can we can never pinpoint what it was. Um, but that was that's probably the main thing. It was particularly evident that the females from the entrance appeared to be uh, certainly had evidence of being involved in labour from a young age, even in comparison to the males there. Um, 
And what we what was apparent as well is there was a clear difference in the teeth, in the dentitions of the individuals from Draw Chapel and those from the entrance. There was a higher, uh, there was there appeared to be a higher intake of of sugary, but particularly carbohydrate, refined carbohydrates in the wealthier, shall we say, individuals, which actually impacted on their teeth. They had a, a greater level of dental decay and dental loss, whereas the individuals buried near the entrance didn't have as much evidence of that, but had more evidence of dental wear, dental attrition, which is where the teeth are wearing down because the foods being consumed are quite coarse. Now, that could be related slightly to dates in that, you know, one group, particularly by the entrance, might be slightly earlier than than those in the Rot Chapel, but it's not a significant difference. So it probably is actually nuances in diet in terms of what the wealthier individuals in Kilkenny were consuming. Um, compared with the ordinary, I suppose, Joe Soap walking down the road where, you know, the, the breads would have been, for the, for the normal person, the bread and, and porridges and everything would have been, could have been relatively um, coarse in texture and impacting the teeth. Um, and what we see in, for example, there was one, I think, a female individual from the entrance whose teeth, I think she had something like 18 teeth left by the time she died and 11 of those were completely worn down to the roots and that had resulted in the development of dental abscesses um, which you know in an age when there's no cure even if you pulled out the tooth the infection is still there if there's no cure for for an active infection that you have then it can ultimately actually be, be fatal to the individual all of humanity until we get to the stage of what we call the Western world now where you're, you know, you're quite affluent is um, infectious disease would have killed, you know, the vast majority of people throughout the time. Um, but there's no sign of, there's very little evidence of any type of infectious disease on these particular individuals, um, which would have been, like I said, the major cause of death really in the, the late medieval, post-medieval periods in Ireland. Um, but just because we don't find the evidence doesn't mean that they didn't die from an infectious disease. It just It's because it takes time for the disease to actually impact on the bone. And if somebody dies quickly, then they, it would never impact on the bone. And, you know, that evidence is, is obviously lost. But the other thing that we did get um, quite a, lot, a significant amount of evidence of is dietary uh, issues that, you know, they're, they're, there's imbalances in the diet. They're getting too much, perhaps, of something or not enough of, of another. So you're getting a lot of kind of evidence of what's called metabolic disorders in individuals from childhood through to adulthood. And it's that type of, if you're not getting adequate, adequate nutrition, that obviously will impact on how your, your immunity or, or your resistance, I suppose, towards certain infectious diseases um, so it's all cyclical, it's all linked in, and just because we don't actually have, you know, concrete evidence of how somebody died, we can certainly say there, there, you know, there may have been a build-up um, of certain other factors in the in the physical remains of somebody that would have contributed towards their, their death. 
Translating all this information into an exhibition is not easy, but it's an essential part of the process. And I was really keen to talk to Tandem Design, a company based in Belfast, who are tasked with making this information accessible in the exhibition which is about to open. Next we hear from Sheila Dooley, who's an interpretation designer with Tandem. We try and create engaging and accessible and fun exhibition experiences for people. So essentially every day I put myself in a visitor's shoes because our work is very visitor-centric. And in that regard, we think about exhibitions in terms of the visitors, what they want to see, what they want to do, who they might be with, and the kind of fun but learning type experiences that they want from us. One of the most enjoyable aspects for me about this project was really getting to understand more about mortuary practices and to consider how the human remains were treated after death, which is something that we explore in the exhibition. And it really is fascinating to consider the changes that have uh, occurred only in a matter of a couple of hundred years, maybe four or five hundred years. And so that was really meaningful for me. And one of the things that we wanted to get across in the exhibition was that kind of meaningful understanding of about life and death in the past in medieval Kilkenny. Part of that story, and one of the privileges for me, I suppose, working on it, was the fact that women are generally left out of historical narratives, be it deliberately or undeliberately. And what was wonderful was that the two out of the four remains are actually of women. And that was a real privilege to be able to investigate a little bit further into what their lives would have been like. And gosh, even to consider that one of the human remains uh, is a young, what I would call her a young woman between 17 and 18 years old, and her life seemed to be etched in her bones. So the story of her life was etched in her bones in a way that really causes, brings emotion and makes you think how hard her life must have been because she did have some, as I'm sure the others might have mentioned, had some issues with her spine and some uh, problems that that would have caused her substantial pain throughout life. And for a 17, a teenager to us, but really a mature woman back then, it's quite emotive to think of these people who are, who we've literally worked for in one way uh, or worked with in another way, that they are going to be displayed in the museum. So it's a real privilege. Finally, I was lucky enough to get a sneak preview of the exhibition. And next you're going to hear Grace Fagan, the curator manager of the Medieval Mile Museum in Kilkenny, who has been on the show before, talk you through this incredible insight into the lives of the poor of Medieval Kilkenny. So when the visitor sees it at first, they'll be, you know, the, the story is introduced to them about what the content of the exhibition is. And then what's crucial for, for us and for our, our partner in this, one of our partners in this, the National Museum of Ireland, is that visitors choose to move to, to, to observe the actual remains themselves. If they don't want to do that, they can explore the, the various um, graphics and, and, and panels and so on, which will tell them the whole story w- without them having to come face to face, if you like, with, with the actual human remains. So we're walking over um, a, a burial vault, which was to the Waters family, but then immediately to our left um, is this large climate-controlled case, 
and the three individuals uh, laid out. The first one we see is the, the, the skeletal remains of the woman who was over 45, then the 12, 13 year old child, and then uh, next is that 17 to, 18, 17 to 19 year old woman. Skeletons are laid out in a, in a very scientific way. There was a few different things we, we could have done um, with this. And if people are familiar, let's say, with the, the bog bodies on display in the National Museum, obviously they, there was soft tissue and connective tissue still in place with those bodies. So they're displayed kind of as they were found and in a way as they were deposited in, in various kind of, uh, in, in a, you know, almost in a fetal position, some of them. Whereas these are, are simply bones. There are no connective tissue surviving. Um, it would have been really difficult to try and recreate how they were buried, how they were laid out in burial. So we decided to lay them out in a very scientific manner, almost as they are being examined and as they were being examined by Linda um, in her laboratory. Um, what stands out I think straight away um, with some of them are the, the green, the kind of bluey green marks on some of the bones which indicate where the burial shroud pins uh, were and where they oxidised um, against the bone um, as, the, as the remains decayed. Um, also, what is interesting is that the, the, the skeleton in the middle, which is the, the 12 to 13 year old child, there are so many more bones there because this child was still at a stage of de development when um, bones were, were yet to fuse together. So when you compare them to the 17, 19 year old or the 45 year old on either side, um, there's just so many more bones, so many more pieces to them. There are three panels then opposite the, the case which represented three individuals and we've done our best in the kind of in an illustrative way to show possibly what they looked like in their lives, what they would have worn, the kind of work that they would have done and there's just some information about um, the, the evidence that we, we gleaned from the, um, from the skeletons um, in the clues about the lives they would have led and also what's I think most kind of striking to people is we've indicated on these panels the estimated height that these people at these, which these people would have stood and that's really something that's just such a close um, it, it's something that really provides a really close connection for people when they see it um, we'll go around the other side now and take a look at some more of the information about the archaeology and the osteoarchaeology. Um, yeah, so on, on one of one of the panels. Um, on the outside of the structure, um, we have some information here, particularly about the way that um, these people were buried, and in general, the burial of, of the poor in, in medieval Ireland, talking about the kind of material um, that would have been used to create the shrouds, the kind of pins that would have used to been used to wrap them. Um, and then also we have this really kind of nice opportunity for people to just reflect and have a little think. And we're asking people a question, you know, having uh, encountered all of this material, how people would like themselves to be remembered when they're gone. Um, and there are comment cards here for people to, to fill out and to, to place on the exhibit um, so that people can read, I suppose, each other's um, thoughts um, and we, we'll gather them up at the end of each day. So we'll hope we'll get good feedback on that. Um, and then... 
um, there's a number of panels here that, that talk about the, the, you know, the work done by Linda and Colleen and we can see photos of them in action and this is where we can see photos of how the actual remains were uncovered, how they were laid out in depth. Um, and opposite then, again, we're on the, on the outside of the structure, we've got panels here that are um, kind of, how do I describe them? They're, they're il illustrations that have been carved into the material that the structure is made of. They're inspired by the, um, the, the mural tomb of Sir Richard Shee, which is outside, uh, underneath the Kilkenny Room. So um, we've got three panels, again, representing these three individuals. And then all along the bottom, scenes from Kilkenny, um, medieval Kilkenny. You can catch a glimpse of St. Canice's Round Tower, um, Rope House. Um, we've got a fella kind of driving pigs <laughs> in, in an area here. We know there was references to pigs in, in the in the city centre uh, back in the day. So it's just, kind of, again, we're trying to remind people that these aren't just bones, but they, they were people that, that lived lives in a, in a particular environment. Um, and then there's a touch screen um, to, to talk to give people a little bit more information about the kind of uh, scientific research that that can be undertaken and that has been undertaken. And also, it's on the touch screen that we tell that story of the one life unlived and the infant that was recovered from underneath the the Kilkenny room as it is now. Um, we just felt it was not. Um, it was not in our interests or anyone's interests really to display the actual physical remains of that infant. We felt it was just a little bit too sensitive um, for a lot of people. So if you're interested in that story, the touchscreen is where you can find out about that. Three Lives, Three Deaths and One Life Unlived opened in the Medieval Mile Museum in Kilkenny on July the 25th, 2019. Entry is €8 Euros and you can find out more at medievalmilemuseum.ie. That's medievalmilemuseum.ie. Thanks to Colleen O'Driscoll from Kilkenny Archaeology, Dr Linda Lynch and Sheila Doody at Tandem Design. I'd also like to thank Grace Fagan and all the staff at the Medieval Mile Museum for their help in creating this episode. The next show tackles one of the most controversial aspects of the Great Famine, that is, whether or not it constituted an attempted genocide. Until then, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.